So we're reading uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 to 16. Let us hear the Word of God. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing which He will manifest in His own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And as the grass withers and the flower fades, God's word alone endures forever. May he bless this uh, to our hearts as we study it. Well, just to get it out there, that's a strange word I'm sure some of you, uh, perhaps younger people, have never heard before, potentate. Uh, It's uh, a word that simply means God is sovereign. Christ is sovereign. That is, in His sovereignty, He rules over everything with His will and power. So that's what that word means. But we're looking at this as Paul brings his letter to a conclusion, he looks and he calls Timothy here a man of God. And I want us just to consider first in our own hearts, just thinking before God, do you consider yourself to be a man of God? And, and that's a generic term. So ladies, it, it's inclusive of all, of all of us here. Do you consider yourself a man of God? I'm sure there's a measure of humility in some of us where we would recognize that that is a a title, that is a standing that we have before God. But we would probably very humbly say, well, I'm not the man of God that I should be. Which probably is is a, a true thing to say. But I'm sure Timothy could say that. And yet here Paul is looking at him and saying, you, O man of God... We're, we're more, I believe, much more accustomed to using the word Christian. And that word Christian means follower of Christ. Very interestingly, some of you may not know this, but the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. Acts 11.26, Acts 26.28, and 1 Peter 4.16. And when it was first used... It wasn't used in a positive way. It was society. It was the world looking at those who were following the Lord Jesus Christ and said, look at those Christians. It was a a term of mockery. And even when you read it in Acts, you can see that this wasn't the church coming up with this title and name for themselves. It was the world scorning them and ridiculing them for following this supposed man who died and was raised again, who supposedly ascended up on clouds into heaven 
and, and is not able to be seen for us. They, they mocked the idea of worshipping an invisible God. And so it wasn't a term of endearment. But the church has owned it. <laughs> I don't think that's a wrong thing. To own those terms that do declare who we are. However, that word Christian, follower of Christ, is so commonly used today, it's more of a title or an adjective to things as opposed to the identity of who we are. In fact, even the church today recognizes this, and perhaps some of you have done this very thing, that in order to define more accurately what we mean and where we stand with the word Christian, we've added other adjectives to it, haven't we? I'm a born-again Christian. I want to doubly state who I am because the word has become somewhat meaningless on the lips of very many people. Or evangelical, and there is another word that is losing its depth and meaning because of the way things have changed even within the kingdom of God. Here, Paul uses the word man of God. And again, just for some understanding, it is a phrase that is only used twice in the New Testament. Here, as he is speaking to Timothy in verse 11, and in 2 Timothy 3 verse 17, where he is talking to all of us within the church, where the Word of God has been given, so that we all may be men of God, rightly conducting ourselves in wisdom and truth. It is a phrase that does indeed apply to every believer. It is a phrase more commonly used in the Old Testament. It's used of several what I call no-name prophets, men who were called by God but we never know their name, who were commissioned to go do something for Him. But it is used specifically for just a very few men. Moses, Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha. You see the company you're being placed in. (laughs) You, O man of God. (laughs) But the thing about that phrase, which I encourage you to consider owning, is that it's primary stress. When he says, you, O man of God, that that is a phrase that is stressing who you belong to. That I am God's. Just as the word Christian. I am Christ. We read from Deuteronomy 26 for that very purpose. Today. And and I, I like to think of that as the Lord's Day. The Sabbath Day. Today as we have gathered as the church. Do you know what you're proclaiming? Deuteronomy 26, 17. I am proclaiming the Lord is my God. (laughs) But even more, what is God proclaiming today as you gather and assemble as His church? Also today, the Lord has proclaimed, you are His special people. Isn't that awesome? 
that this is what God is at work doing, bringing forth His people. We are men and women of God. And and Paul, in putting that forward, it doesn't come out so much in the English language, but in his original language, it's very emphatic. But you, O man of God, you have confessed the good confession before many witnesses. Verse 12. What he's saying is to Timothy, but to the whole of the church, you have made a confession before people. They have witnessed that you have declared Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You have declared your faith in Him. You have surrendered your life unto God. And do you comprehend what that now means for you? That this is no small thing. This is not a mere ritual in the church where we, as we take our covenant children who come and make their profession of faith and stand before you by the Lord's table and they make it known to you, yes, they believe in the Lord Jesus and they now have access to the table of the Lord and to that fuller communion and fellowship and labor in the church. That it's not mere ritual. That we are saying, and God is saying, very explicitly. He's my God. And He's saying, you're my people. It's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Some of you have memorized these verses. But he says there, you, your whole being, your body and your soul, Which is why you need to be as concerned what you do with your body as what you do with your soul before God. Your whole being has become the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You have been bought with a price. We're the purchase of God. I mean, His whole purpose in sending His Son and in performing that marvelous work of salvation on the cross that culminates in the exalting glory of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. That whole work for our salvation was so that God could purchase us to be His people. Therefore, Glorify God in your body and spirit, which are God's. It's about looking at who you are before God and saying, Yes, this is who I am. I am not my own. Body and soul, I belong to my faithful Savior. Some of you will know the Heidelberg Catechism there. My friends, I said all of that before you because that's what Paul means when he says in verse 12, the good confession you have made. That's what it is. That's what it means to be a Christian. See, it's not a title. It's not an adjective. It's not like adding an adjective to a song and saying, oh, this is a Christian song. It's the good confession of faith. 
And anything less than that is useless, vain, man-centered religion. And, and understanding that, it, it falls upon us, it begs this question, are you upholding this good confession in your life? Because that's what Paul is getting at in these verses, even unto Timothy. Keep this charge without spot and blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good confession that we are making before people, before many witnesses. And in some of those occasions, it's going to be hard to make that good confession. But that's who we are. Men and women of God, purchased by the blood of Christ, no longer our own, a temple of the Holy Spirit, one whose body and spirit belong to God. And, and we want to consider, how do you uphold this good confession in your life? Do you keep it private? It's, it's what the world wants us to do, isn't it? Don't you hear that? Separation of church and state. Religion has no place in government. Uh, religion has no place in school. Except if you're another religion than Christianity. We'll make allowances uh, for those minorities. Keep it private. It's all, all right for you to have your faith. But when it comes to your, your other environments, social settings, keep it private. Now, there's the challenge, isn't it? How do we live out our faith when we live in a world that is saying, keep it to yourself? How do you uphold that good confession in your life? And, and just two points this morning. The first is, contend for this confession. Contend for it. And that's something very strongly stressed by Paul in these, in these verses, especially verses 11 and 12. Contend for this confession. And I use that word contend because Jude says the same thing. Jude uses this language. In, in Jude verse, uh, verse 3, he says, uh, Beloved, uh, the church, uh, Christian, I was going to diligently write to you concerning our common salvation, but I found it more necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And that word contend, it's a stronger word than what is used in here where Paul speaks about the urging in verse 13. Uh, it's the word that we get agonized from. <laughs> or only uh, Jude uses it uh, greatly agonize, uh, contend. That these are things that very much uh, bring forth a real hardship and, and agony within our own souls. Contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Jude and, and Paul likewise recognize in their own time and day that many supposed that godliness could bring a monetary gain to their lives. And, and that's where we begin to contend for this confession. 
It begins within the realm of the kingdom of God itself. You know, there's hardly a letter that Paul wrote where he doesn't warn against false teachers. Where he doesn't warn against those who would rise up within your own midst who look at godliness as a means of prospering their own life. And Jude is writing the same thing. And the way that they they try to bring that prosperity into their life with this charlatan of godliness is by cheapening grace, by minimizing sin, and by redefining the gospel so that it's easier for everyone to simply hear and get along in their life. And what is called to us is to contend for this good confession. And when you read verses 11 and 12, there there are a number of imperatives there, that is, commands or charges, if you will. In, In other words, it's a statement, you know, children, when your mother says, go clean your room, that's an imperative. It's not something that she's asking you to do, it's something that she's commanding you to do. And that's what we find in verses 11 and 12 is a number of these imperatives. God is commanding us through His Word. He's not asking us nicely. You know, it would be really good if you really took Christianity seriously in your life and just tried a little bit harder to show that I am your God. That's not what He's saying. Pursue, flee, fight. These are imperatives. It's the way of godliness. Contending for this confession. And there's three particular settings in these verses that help us to understand how we are to contend. And and you see, first of all, within verse 11, is within our personal life. Contend for this confession in your personal life. You, O man of God, Flee these things and pursue. There's two imperatives. In your personal life, flee and pursue. And what are these things that you are to flee? Well, he's already mentioned several of them throughout this letter. These things are the dangers and temptations that Paul has addressed in this entire letter, but they're summarized for us in what we heard from last week in verses 3 to 11. Flee unwholesome words. Don't don't sit and listen to someone who cheapens the gospel of Jesus Christ just so it's a little more acceptable to the world. Yeah, you're going to have some measure of success with that, but that's because you've minimized sin and you've cheapened grace. You've made it more about what we can do to attain salvation than what a glorious work Christ has done, dying in your place on the cross, bearing the fullness of your guilt before God, taking all your sinfulness away so that there's no more condemnation on you. That's that's the glory of His work. And to simply say, you know what? God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. Give your life over to Him and Jesus will make everything better. 
Do you see the distance, the difference, the distinction? How unwholesome that latter gospel was. Because it's not about the truth of the work that Jesus did. Unwholesome words, false teachings that do not draw you into a deeper life in Christ. And as well, controversies that only bring strife, envy, rely, reviling, and, and contempt for the truth. Oh, you can't believe that the word, that the Bible is, is true in all that it teaches. You can't believe that it's the inspired word of God. It was written by men. It's got errors in it. It's got contradictions. My friends, those are the things that we have to flee. <laughs> Because they're, they're striving not to show you God and the glory of Jesus Christ. They're striving to just simply make you comfortable in your life. And there is no salvation in words and phrases like that. And coveting and greed, which Paul you know, stresses in, excuse me, in verses 9 and 10 uh, about uh, how they lead us away from faith in Christ and they replace that heavenly treasure with material well-being. Flee these things. That's how you begin to contend for the good confession. Flee. Flee these things. Be wary of them. But in fleeing, you are to pursue you are to pursue a life of holiness. And that's what he gets at in verse 11 when he says, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. That's holiness. We read it from Deuteronomy 26 verse 19. God says, I I have called you my people because I desire you to be holy in this world. How many times have we heard that? You know, it's, it's something about the preparation for that series in Leviticus. I'm sure some of you are thinking, Pastor, that's a strange book to be uh, taking us through. But do you know the overarching theme of Leviticus? Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's what it's all about. Be holy. Be my people whom I have separated from this world, whom I have called out of darkness into the light and glory of my kingdom. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And we hear that in the New Testament. We hear that from Peter, when he says the same thing. 1 Peter 1, I think it's 15 and 16. Be holy, And why is it so important to be pursuing the holiness as it's spread out there? And that's the neat thing about verse 11 is it shows us what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to pursue holiness? We'll get there in in a second. But why is it so important? Because what does God's Word say? Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace and holiness without which what? No one can see God. You can't see God without it. In fact, it's it's the imperative of the indicative. The indicative being, if you are a Christian, then holiness 
the imperative, has become your pursuit. It can't help but be your pursuit. Because as a Christian, what is your greatest desire? One thing I have desired, O Lord, that will I seek. Psalm 27. To behold your glory. To behold it. Wasn't that Moses' great desire? God, you've set me as a leader of your people and, and told me to lead them into this land and everything. You've done all this, but you haven't shown me your glory. And God said, Moses, no man can see me and live. But I'll show you a speck of my glory. What transformation it had on Moses' life. The people could see it and they feared and trembled. Holiness. Be holy. And and what is it to pursue holiness? It is to pursue righteousness. That is, it is to seek to do what is right to the glory of God. It is to pursue godliness. What this whole letter is about. Living godly lives in and through the church to the glory of God. And godliness is, is about us seeing ourselves more and more conformed to that image of Christ. I want to be like my God. In all truth and righteousness. And pursue faith. A maturity of trust in the Lord. Oh, what it would be, people of God, if we were less like the disciples in the boat when the waves and storms of life come and meet us and we cry out, God, don't you care? And to be those men and women of God who when the trials come, our first instinct is to say, Lord, help me through this, that your perfect will be done in my life. Maturity of faith. That's holiness. (laughs) And love. To exercise more and more kindness and goodness in the name of God. Patience. That is a word that speaks of endurance. Being able to make it through trials and sufferings without giving up on God. (laughs) And gentleness. A humble, lowly spirit that is ever ready to forbear with people's offenses and forgive. That's what gentleness is all about. Don't we live in a strange climate where everyone gets offended at everything and anything and are unwilling to forgive until that person is destroyed? Doesn't that kind of clearly define our current culture? But the people of God who are holy are gentle. Are gentle in this way. Forbear. You know, I often hear Christians say, you know, if we did anything to the degree that Islam does when their prophet is offended, (laughs) why don't we? Because we know who our God is. We know that vengeance belongs to Him. And in gentleness, we forbear this blasphemy of our God, knowing 
that he will bring forth his vengeance in his day. For now, we pity. We pity the lost, the pagan, the ungodly, who think nothing of blaspheming God's name. That, my friends, is holiness. Holiness at work and holiness that... You see, in this, in this light, when you look at those words there, this in our personal life, this holiness becomes seen by the world around us. It's not something you can hide. So pursue these things. Contend for that good confession in your life. And the second sphere you see in verse 12 is within your church. Fight the good fight of faith. Fight it. And here he's talking about the good fight of the faith that, that speaks about uh, agonizing over the falsehoods and the doctrines of the gospel and of Christ that are under assault from within. I mean, we should expect the world to increase in enmity against the kingdom of God and against His church and realize that there's no way that darkness is ever going to appreciate the light and the glory of the gospel. But what we're fighting over is what's rising up within the church. There's where we agonize. And that's what he's at. That word fight. It is. That word fight is the word agonize. Agonize. Paul did this in, in Acts 20, 28. He came to the Ephesian elders whom Timothy here is dealing with. And you read in Acts 20 and you see him saying, I know that from within your own midst, savage wolves are going to rise up and steal away sheep to themselves. They don't care about the glory of Christ or His church. They simply want to follow Him. And then he goes on to speak about how he agonized with many tears for the church. Do you agonize? I mean, it's hard not to get angry and frustrated, but do you not agonize tearfully when the doctrines of Christ's gospel are so maligned from within? Or over those sheep who have strayed. We have a number of our own children who have strayed. Don't you agonize in your heart that they love the world more than Christ? This is fighting the good fight. Warning and praying with tears. And, and this, the third setting, you have your own personal life, you have your church, you have your calling. As he says there, and again, this imperative, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called. Your calling here. Possess. That word lay hold, it's, it's possess. You know how sometimes when a, a child comes with their parents into this new setting and there's all these strangers and what is it that mostly you see with a young child is that they grab hold of their parents and their parents go to move and it's like this added weight that's just stuck to them. They have so gripped them that you can't shake them off your leg. <laughs> Uh, that's the force of this word. Lay hold. Possess. 
And a way of understanding this, when he says lay hold of eternal life, what he's saying is live your life as though the Lord will be calling you into glory today. Live your life as though today is the day that you will be called by God into His presence. For this is what you have been called unto. This is why you have been predestined and called. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 30, those whom He predestined, He what? He called. And what is the end of that calling? Not just to be justified, but to be glorified. To bear the fullness of the glory of your salvation in Jesus Christ. As we have a saying in our circles, in this life, we as Christians, we have been freed from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. But what is the longing of our heart? What is it that we have laid hold of eternal life for? It's to be freed from the presence of sin. And that's what we're longing for. And that's what glory is all about. Contend for this faith in your life. And with that, you're not left in your own strength to do this. And this is the closing point. We are contending for our confession, but we are doing this in the strength of Christ. And verses 13 to 16 is all about cherishing Christ Jesus. Cherishing. I think that's a strong word. Uh, we sometimes joke uh, in our home, I love you, and I, and I will respond, but I cherish you. Because it's not that love itself isn't, doesn't have a depth to it, but cherish is, is all about holding most precious what you love. That, that's how I define it. And, and you see Paul is getting at this when he says, I urge you, in verse 13, in the sight of God before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession. Christ Jesus who went before you in this good confession. Christ Jesus who is coming again to bring you to Himself. Christ Jesus who is the blessed and only potentate. And so on and so on. Cherish Him. Looking unto Jesus. You know, our courage to be able to uphold this good confession in our life does not come from within us. It comes from Christ. He went before us. Paul says there in verses 13 and and 14 that, that, that he maintained this good confession before Pilate. Pilate challenged Jesus' kingship. Pilate mocked his truth. Pilate thought that Jesus' life was in his hands. And at every stage, Jesus spoke more and more clearly about the glory of the God who was over Pilate. He knew he stood in a glory that was beyond this earth. My kingdom is not of this world. And there is one, you have no authority over me except what my Father has given you. You know, there's a strength in that, isn't there? And, And he's saying, Christ has gone before us. 
Meaning that he himself, having endured that, has endured that so that in him we can endure. It's the same thing that the Lord spoke to Joshua. You remember when Joshua was called to replace Moses. How would you like to stand in that pulpit? (laughs) You know, I always thought, poor man who had to stand in Metropolitan Tabernacle after Charles Spurgeon passed away. Uh, Who fills those shoes? Well, here comes Joshua after Moses who had seen God and whose face shone forth the glory of God. And he now has to lead the people. But as Joshua 1 opens up, what does he say three times in verse 6, verse 7, verse 9? Be strong and of good courage. Be strong and very courageous. And finally, in verse 9, he says it again. Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You see, it wasn't a courage and strength he mustered up of his own will and power. It was a courage and strength that God said, I will be for you because I'm with you. My friends, Christ has gone before us in this good confession that we are holding fast to. This is the glory in which we stand. And as we stand in in His glory, as we stand in His strength and power, it's not our meager courage that is on display, but Him, our Lord. We cherish Him. And we are looking for His glory. And as you look for His glory, look at everything that Paul says about Christ in verses 15 and 16. How it comes to bring that strength when we know who our Lord and Savior is. What have we to fear? What? He is the potentate. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the sovereign one. He is the one the Father has exalted above all and said all authority belongs to Him. There is none higher. And this is our God. What are we to fear? He has immortality. Jesus is Himself life. He said that even... You know how He knew He would be raised from the dead? Because I have life. I am life. That's how He puts it here. He has... He alone has immortality. I have life. I am life. (laughs) How is it that we can hope eternal life? Because the one in whom we believe, the one who has made His dwelling with us by His Spirit, is the very one who alone is and has immortality. And we have it. We have it. Death. Death is not a sting. I mean, I'm not not saying we should simply relish death. We relish life. But we know death has no hold over me. It has no sting. The grave has no victory. I know that the moment that my body dies, my soul is instantly with God. And that's why Jesus would say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And he who believes in me shall never die. You really don't die. You live eternally. 
in that moment. He dwells in absolute glory, unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see. He is light itself again, shining forth absolute purity and blessedness and glory. A glory which when it fell upon the tabernacle in the temple in the midst of Israel, none could stand in its presence, but a glory that Christ says, you will stand with me in. Does that marvel your hearts? Some of you have heard it. It's, it's one of my favorite verses from one of the parables in Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And what does he say at the end of the age when he harvests the earth and he brings forth all of his children, brings them into glory? It says there, and then the righteous will shine forth as the sun. That we will have that very glory of God that not only encompasses us, it, it, it is the glory that we now shine in our very life. Absolute purity and blessedness. And my friends, why we cherish Christ is as we hear what Christ is all about here in these verses, we understand that He who is the King of Kings has said to us, You will reign with Me. He is the one who says, I have and am immortality, life itself, and in me you will live. I am dwelling in absolute glory, unapproachable life, but you will dwell in that glory and that light. You will be able to approach the throne of God and behold your God. You will shine forth that very glory. And He the one who is glorified with all honor and everlasting power that belong to him, he has said to us, and in me you will be glorified as well. That's why we cherish Christ. And in cherishing Christ, we are able to hold this good confession in this world now. So you see, this is not complicated stuff. This isn't something that is beyond us. When he says, lay hold, lay hold of this good confession in the presence of many witnesses, we're not being asked to do something we can't. The power, the glory of our God who is with us will enable us. Let us so contend. Let's pray.